You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. This is episode 63, where we are going to talk about the 1992 film, The Player, written by Michael Tolkien and directed by Robert Altman. This one had another one of our films that had a huge cast. Tim Robbins, Greta Scacchi, Fred Ward, Whoopi Goldberg, Peter Gallagher, Brian James, Cynthia Stevenson, Vincent D'Onofrio, Sidney Pollock, Dean Stockwell, Lyle Lovett, Jeremy Piven, and a bunch of other uncredited, or maybe not uncredited, they are in the credits, but just I had no room in my little notes for everybody who was in this film. So oh, yeah, into the film with the, the credits is a huge cast. It's quite, it's quite large. So this one is kind of when anybody talks about a film about Hollywood, this one is brought up, I would say. So if you, if you haven't seen it, it's kind of an iconic film. It's a film about a studio executive that is being sent death threats by a writer whose script he rejected. But which one? He doesn't know. So some of the taglines are now more than ever, which means nothing. Well, that comes from there's a, a gag in the film. Oh, okay. Where painted on the side of one of the studio buildings is movies now more than ever. Oh, okay. <laughs> Obviously wasn't paying attention. Let's see. Everything you've heard is true, which is kind of along the same lines, right? Yeah, yeah. In Hollywood, it's not who you know, it's who you kill. Yeah, not really that good a tagline because it's not that much of a murder mystery. Right. <laughs> the best movie ever made, Griffin Mill. <laughs> okay. And- Making movies can be murder. Yeah. None of those are fantastic. None of those are great. Yeah. Yeah. That's maybe why they had to keep... Go write another one. Yeah, keep going. Go write... Jimmy, go write another one. (laughs) Jimmy, another tagline. (laughs) That one sucks. More kangaroo. (laughs) We have to tell the more kangaroo story someday. (laughs) Yeah, someday. Okay. Oh, wait, wait, wait. There's an opportunity for a smoochy, smoochy, smoochy sticker. If you write in and tell us where the more kangaroo... Line comes from, we will give you a sticker. Another sticker, yeah. yeah. We're handing them out like candy. Well, this is that's a tough ask. <laughs> I, I will fall out of my chair if somebody can tell me where that comes from. Okay, Mike, what's our pickup line for this film? Action. Oh, it's just perfect. Oh, it is perfect. There could not be an, a better. There is not. This is for a movie awesome. about movie making. Way to go, Altman. Nicely done. All right, let's see. The we have to talk about this opening sequence. Yes, and in fact. I thought it would be hilarious if we could figure out some way to have an eight-minute tracking shot in our opening to our podcast, but it didn't make any sense. <laughs> no, I will put in the show notes the YouTube link to this oh, opening yeah, yeah. sequence. And one of my favorite pieces of trivia is they rehearsed the day before, but they shot 15 takes on the day they filmed this, and take 10 was the one they used. Oh, good little bit of trivia there, Michael. Thank you. I liked it because... Shooting outside of the offices, it it gives that voyeuristic look, Uh uh and it it shows us all of those bungalows that they have on the studio lot, and how, and they're seen in some movies, like I loved them in, oh, phooey, what's the, Mr. Banks, Saving Mr. Banks, the Tom Hanks, Disney, Mary Poppins. Saving Mr. Banks, I think. They they have some great shots of those little bungalows that are on studio lots that everybody uses who are working on the film. So I love that. And so you just go from one to the other and you just hear the ridiculousness. I loved it how there were so many, 
It's a Julia Roberts type. <laughs> it's out of Africa meets pretty woman. Oh, I loved the line, it's out of Africa meets pretty woman, because everyone, including myself, describes films as film A meets film B. Yes. So it's perfect. Yes. And if you notice, one of the things that I loved about this setup here is in under two minutes, he's hearing a different pitch. Yeah. He hears three pi separate pitches in, in under eight minutes. Yeah. So Griffin has a very busy day. My other favorite one was Psychic Polecat Thriller with a Heart. Yeah, I like that. With a heart. <laughs> with a heart. <laughs> and I think that that's a phrase also that gets batted around uh -huh. quite a bit. Yeah. Like, it's Chucky, but with a heart. Yeah, but with a heart. <laughs> right. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So again, this is much like the other one. This is, in a sense, a love letter to the movie business. Absolutely. However... Whereas State and Maine was really about production. Yes. This is more about the pre-production side, the yes. studio side. And so there's less love Very maybe much. to go around. Very much. Yes. I thought like from a cinematography standpoint, there's a scene at a restaurant. And this is very Altman. Because yeah. one of the things I watched Nashville in film school. And they talked about how Altman loves many conversations going on and almost like layered. Overlapping. I feel, yeah, I feel bad for the sound guy, sound <laughs> person, <laughs> because it just must be incredibly difficult. But there's this great scene where with Burt Reynolds and he's talking to like an agent and they're in the foreground and you hear them, but then their sound drops and then we pick up the sound. But the shot size doesn't change. So. But right. Reynolds is still in the in the foreground and hit, we're, we're not hearing his conversation, but we're hearing the conversation that we can see in the background of really who we're supposed to be listening to. And it's Tim Robbins meeting with, I wrote down Joel. I don't know if that was the actor's name or the character's no, name. Brian James plays Joel. And so, and they're in the background. And so that happens. And then we cut to them and it's a medium shot of them at the, at the table. And we finish then with their conversation. Well, the that opening shot though, right, is is just gorgeous. I don't know though, is that an Altman kind of trademark to have a long tracking shot somewhere in the film? I feel like it is. Right, because it feels like it goes with those overlapping conversations. Yes, yes. Because I'm thinking of Nashville and there was a lot of it there was a lot of it feels like a documentary. Right, right. Because Sometimes you see things and you're like, well, that could have been cut. Like, so that's where right. it feels like a documentary because there's things that you would maybe would be in there. I'd heard that Hitchcock said that movie dialogue is what we would sound like if we had a writer to help us. And I feel like Altman kind of explicitly eschews that and goes back to people talking over each other and not necessarily having the most smooth conversation. So I think that's an interesting part. I was trying to think back to, I want to say Altman made a film about like an English manor house where there is like maids and stuff. And I feel like that they had that overlapping conversations and maybe there was some, some tracking shots in there because it does very much feel like you're a fly on the wall. Mm -hmm. There's one, and I'm forgetting the name of it. Is it called Husbands and Wives? But he was obviously friends with a ton of different actors. And so he just set up the camera. He would have like these dinner parties and he would just set up the camera and he would just kind of throw suggestions out. But then they said that sometimes people's real life would kind of come up like a Catherine Deneuve would be yelling at her mm -hmm. husband. And there would be some truth in what they were saying because 
kind of like an art imitates life kind sure. of thing. And so, and he loved that and he loved chaos. He loved <laughs> like arguing and fighting and all this stuff. Huh, fascinating. So you are a nerd of the, of the cinematography of a film. So what did you like about Altman's kind of vision? Well, I just, I originally responded to this film the first time I saw it because of that opening tracking shot, yeah. of course. I really liked the, when Griffin goes to the Rialto to meet with David Kahane, how the shot was of Kahane's feet, the boots in the aisle, and how he picked them up and put them back. I thought that was really interesting showing that the, you know, the writer got out of the way of the producer, right? There's a, a, an interesting shot, I don't know why, of a dead koi in a pond that just really kind of <laughs> bumped me. I'll be honest. I, I think he, it, I bet you it was a metaphor and he was making a comment on <laughs> Right. And there were a couple different tracking shots. I, I wouldn't mind stealing this, this idea, and I don't, I'm not saying that this film invented it, but basically the tracking shot follows a character and then stops, and where it stops, it lands on some other thing. So like it, it, it tracks Lyle Lovett's detective and then lands on a photo of Hitchcock on the oh, wall. Oh, yeah, I remember right? that. And one just little interesting movie thing is near the end of the film when Griffin Mills is in like the desert with the, the painter woman, it's a candlelight dinner. And I couldn't help but notice that even though the candles are between them and the light was golden candlelight, it was coming from Tim Robbins' right. <laughs> he was really well lit. It looked gorgeous. <laughs> It just didn't make a damn bit of sense. Yeah. <laughs> but that was a case where I don't know many people would have caught and questioned that. So I believe I read in the trivia that Altman had to raise the funds himself for this film. And a lot of the stars who showed up did it for free because they just wanted to work with him. I believe that, yes, that's true, that he was offered the a studio would fully fund it only if they cast a big name. And that's one of the great things that I loved about this was the no stars, just talent kind of thing. And then we see throughout the film that that original vision gets corrupted in every film. Right. And you were mentioning, you told me that Bruce Willis, ironically, who has been in the news lately. Yes, um, Bruce. Bruce Willis was supposed to be the lead, but Altman wanted Tim Robbins. And then it's kind of fun because then Bruce Willis comes in at the end with right. Julia Roberts. I, and, I don't know if it was Bruce Willis himself, but it was a person like that, oh, a big, oh. a giant big name. My bad. Well, or my misremembering. I, I, I'm not sure. Maybe Bruce could tell us or, or Robert or Tim. Oh, I liked Robert. the shot when he is kind of pretty much stalking the, <laughs> um, the woman who's paint, the lady who's painting. And there's a shot where his reflection, because mm, he's standing just yeah. outside her house, Right. And so you can see both of them at the same time because you're seeing his right. reflection and then you're seeing her inside the house. Uh -huh. I thought that was a cool way that to kind of... That is very cool. Yeah, yeah. Nice to technique. show both of them. Right. And then under my writing tab, I have that I know agents are evil, but I don't think they actually have the stamina to kill somebody barehanded and leave them in a puddle. <laughs> right. It's interesting because... From my perspective, uh, the average person who, if you killed somebody in a crime of passion, would immediately feel remorse, and he didn't even check for a pulse or anything. It was kind of, and maybe that's the point, is he's saying that studio people are heartless. Right. Or even like <laughs> running to his car, calling 911, and then leaving the scene, maybe. Right. It was very interesting, but I think that maybe is Altman's ultimate message, 
yeah. or the screenwriter who wrote the novel basically is that <laughs> the studio executives are, are evil. heartless creatures. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that, yeah. There's a line though where Griffin says, I was an asshole. It comes with a job. Yeah. Producers and, and studio execs don't have, right. aren't in high regard. But the character of Bonnie, played by Cynthia Stevenson, yes. she gets done dirty by Griffin. And if we continue that to its natural conclusion, wouldn't she stab him yes. or something? Like, I mean, he really did her wrong. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. What else did you like about this film? Well, one thing that I, I liked about the film was this recurring bit where everybody is in Hollywood. So we even see it at the very, very beginning. Walter Stuckel, I think is his character name. Played by Fred Ward, great actor. He's head of security. And we first hear him talking about how great it is that there are these long tracking shots in, in these great films. <laughs> right? They open a long tracking shot. And I love how, how made of that is. But how everybody in that they encounter pretty much is all involved in, in the film industry. And at one point he says at a lunch, he's like, hey, let's not talk about the movie business. We're all educated people. Let's talk about something else. There's a pause when they can't think of anything, and they all laugh. Yeah, right? and then they just start talking about the movie. But and then, then he, you know, he sees John Cusack, and that just that whole smarmy, like, hey, are you going to be, you know, in Vail this year? No, I'll be at Steamboat. And just that whole, kind of the whole thing. I, I enjoyed, again, that skewering kind of of that. And then watching the film that's pitched by a character actor, I, I wish I could remember his name. He's an English fellow, and he works with Altman. And then... I think, is it Dean Stockton who plays the guy who's trying to pitch it? And it starts out, right, as this one thing. And then over the course of the film, it gets morphed into a blockbuster that bears very little resemblance to the movie that's pitched. And and again, this is all throughout the film. You can see this slow mutation, which is, I think, exactly what would happen in the studio system. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Under costuming, Bonnie's high heel shoe breaks and it made me realize <laughs> that this is such a trope in movies in storytelling that when somebody is having a bad time of it specifically a woman right her heel will break and it's like you know if she can't be kicked enough then this happens doesn't she have to be crying at the moment that it breaks <laughs> almost always yeah. almost always okay. she's late She's uh-huh. she's disheveled so she's already a little bit disheveled yeah her makeup is running but her yes. hair and maybe she's carrying a bunch of things. Oh, absolutely. Which then once her heel breaks, then everything falls. I'm not a huge wearer of high heels. Neither am I. But heels of women's shoes break far less than is depicted in film. So did they have to have the thing at the, the end that says these Jimmy shoes were specially <laughs> modified to fail? Right. Yeah. If they have a red, if they have a red <laughs> sole, they have to <laughs> do a disclaimer. Right. That these Louboutins were were <laughs> altered to be defective. They did not come defective. Exactly. Right. Exactly. But it just, when it happened, I went, all right, I'm done. I, I don't want right. any more heels breaking. I'm going to agree with you on there. It's been played out. I love seltzer humor, but I think heel humor can go away. It, just, I'm done. But tip of the cap <laughs> to the costume department, because I love, love, love her purple power suit. Yes, One, with those broad shoulders. You love a shoulder oh, pad. Oh, 80 shoulder pads. They work. <laughs> she did look nice. It was a nice suit. It was. It was a great color. Good cut. Yep. Tip of the cap. Yeah. I liked her character a lot. I was rooting for her. Yeah, that always makes me sad at the end of the film because she she doesn't end up doing as well as we want. 
Right. As, as the audience. We're rooting for her. Exactly. All right. Anything else you want to mention? In the costume department, one of my highlights was at an industry event, they have a bunch of real life people playing themselves, including Gary Busey <laughs> with a mullet. <laughs> okay. that I, I don't remember that. In my mind's eye, I only see Gary Busey either when he was playing the 50s rock guy or in Lethal Weapon. That's it. Those are the t- and Point Break. But, you know, those two eras, I, I don't remember him in the mullet era. Yeah. There are a lot of stars in this. I started to say you could play a drinking game, but it would probably be very, very dangerous. And I believe in the trivia, it's, it mentioned that at times when watching this film, you don't know if it's an like, you know, a Burt Reynolds cameo where he's being Burt right. Reynolds or is is he portraying, you know, Luke James, the, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Supposedly Altman didn't give any of the cameo people any background. And so Burt Reynolds reacting to Griffin Miller as if he's an asshole is just the way Burt reacted to, <laughs> to production people. Yeah, to studio executives. <laughs> that tracks. <laughs> yeah, right? Was there any head trauma in this film? Well, I think it has to count as head trauma when Griffin kills David Kahane. I don't know how much he actually slams his head or chokes him. It's kind of there a combination. There is an up and down motion, though. Right, right. So I'm going to... Uh, that let's, counts let's as head trauma. It. Yes, yeah. yes. Because there is somebody who dies, so... Yes. And a smooch. Smoochy, smoochy, smoochy. From the smoochies department, I have Bonnie and Griffin in his office at 15 minutes 16. And I don't have anything for him and the Greta Scotchy character. That's inner. Well, oh no, no, no! But they were. We know they had sex because there we had a conversation. I think it right. was even a pause-worthy event. But I, I argue, I don't. I didn't see kissing in there. It was more like combat than kissing to me. Like it, <laughs> it was, was a weird scene. We had a whole conversation oh, yeah, about we did. it. Yeah, it's not not my favorite. Yeah. The way that scene was shot. All right. Well, so we won't talk of this again. We shall not speak of this again. And how about a driving review? Okay, so there was quite a bit of interesting cars in this. First and foremost, I got to say, once again, a warning, kids, don't run down cyclists, no matter how much you might want to. But in that opening tracking shot, Jimmy, the assistant, gets run over. Oops. You know, he survives, but don't do it. It's interesting that they really communicate who the characters are by their cars. So. Jeremy Piven's character drives a Camaro. Griffin drives a Range Rover, not a Land Rover. And that, I mean, that means something. That's the more pretentious version. The super pretentious screenwriter drives a Saab 9000. Again, totally on brand for the guy who brings a briefcase to see a film. And Lyle Lovett's detective character drives a Dodge Diplomat, which I think a 15-year-old American-made sedan would be perfect for that. But what I couldn't actually track is whether Larry Levy who is played by Peter Gallagher, uh-huh. whether he gets a car upgrade. I didn't pay close enough attention, but he drives a very, very nice two-door convertible Mercedes. So they're really telling us a lot about the characters. But don't you think that, especially California, way more than New York, it is all about your car. Yeah. Like your car oh, is such the status. Part of your identity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's right that on. That was really well done. Yeah, absolutely. Shall we go to the numbers? Let's go to the numbers. Okay. I'm going to start off by saying that we watched this one on HBO Max. It's free right now. So I love to find movies that if you've subscribed to that service, you can watch that one for free. The budget for this film was $8 million and it made back its money domestically 
by making just under 22 million and then worldwide it made 28 million. So this one netted 20 million dollars. So that's a pretty good job, Mr. Altman. I'd take it. Yep. IMDb it got a seven and a half out of ten, and the critics love this movie at 98 percent. Yeah, yeah. Very fresh. Makes sense. And the audiences enjoyed it too at 84%. It's just over two hours, which I'd have to say it kind of felt like it. Like, yeah, yeah. I remember I paused at one point, like, where are we in the film? And we were only an hour in. <laughs> and I kind of, oof. And I don't remember it being that long. Isn't that interesting? Oh, you mean your first viewing or this viewing? Yeah, when we were going into this viewing and I saw that it was over two hours, I thought, oh, wow. I don't remember it being that yeah, long. Yeah, it's long. It is rated R. It is listed as a comedy crime drama. It was filmed all around LA, Malibu, South Pasadena, Palm Springs, Hollywood, Santa Monica, West Hollywood, uh, and Brentwood, which is known for other things too. Unfortunately. Yeah. Some of the awards it won, it won a BAFTA for Best Screenplay and Best Direction, and it won at the, Tim Robbins, excuse me, won for Best Actor at Cannes. And Robert Altman was nominated for an Oscar for Best Directing, and it was also nominated for Writing and Best Film Editing, but only nominated, didn't win. little fun trivia fact here. Tim Robbins, lead actor, Uh was born in a hospital not far from my childhood home. Wow. Yeah, yeah. He was born in West Covina. West Covina. Mm Mm-hmm. Alrighty, everybody, that is The Player, and that rounds up our month of talking about movies about movies. For the month of May, we are going to be talking about all movies about Hawaii, because we love Hawaii and movies about Hawaii, and so we are going to kick off our month with a movie that I loved as a kid, and we'll see if I still love, I haven't seen it in years. Blue Hawaii, starring Elvis. Right. It's a good drink, but I don't know if I'm going to like it as much. Let's see. We'll see. It'll be fun. Yeah. We'll talk about it, and I'll talk about why it was my favorite movie as a kid. Right. Yeah. It's got the king in it. All right. That's a good teaser. Join us next week, but never forget. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to DodgeMediaProductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. 